Welcome to the Seed World Pro Podcast, where professionals in the seed industry get the knowledge, information, tools, and community that they need to take their business to the next level. I'm your host, Michelle Klieger, and today's special guest expert is Jeff Nahn. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here today. Great to have you. So I'm excited. You've done some interesting research on gene editing that you're going to share some results with us today. So before we jump into that, I'd just like to give you a second to introduce yourself, your business, your work, to let our listeners know who they're talking to. Yeah, I appreciate it, Michelle. Let me just tell you, though, this is my very first podcast I've ever done. So this is exciting for me. You're, you're kind of the Joe Rogan of the seed professional world, right? I am. And it's fun to pull new people in and get new perspectives. And it's way easier than you think. So you're going to be great. <laughs> well, anyway, um, my uh, I run a boutique consulting firm. We're called the North Hill Group. And uh, we specialize in um, regulatory affairs, government affairs, and consumer affairs for the food and agriculture sector. Um, the people in my firm are primarily either people that spent their career within government and not just U.S. government, but we've got um, people from around the world, um, permanent presence in Mexico and in Japan. Uh, and in Honduras, uh, or there are people who grew up kind of spent their careers in seed companies. Um, so mostly in regulatory science or regulatory affairs for seed companies. So um, we uh, are kind of unique offering in the marketplace is that, um, you know, we can combine the policy experts with the, with the, with the science people uh, in order to help um, smaller companies, mostly in the gene editing or uh, space, navigate um, foreign regulatory uh, requirements for gene edited products. Um, we have done a lot of work in Japan. Uh, I was in a previous life. I was I worked for the Department of Agriculture and was the senior agricultural attaché in Japan for three years. Um, we are, we've done a lot of work around regulatory requirements for gene edited products in Japan. And through the course of that work, um, really discovered that there was a, a knowledge gap around understanding consumers' attitudes towards gene edited products. It is, you know, I think everybody in the industry has the hope and the aspiration that consumers will take a much different view towards gene edited foods than they did than they do towards biotech foods. Um, and that we can somehow differentiate these two technologies in the minds of consumers. But there's not a lot of research into um, how to actually do that. And so on, on behalf of uh, several companies, uh, who are major players in this space, um, we decided to conduct some, some research in Japan, uh, both qualitative and quantitative research, um, looking at uh, what are the current attitudes of Japanese consumers towards gene editing, um, 
what are the messages that really resonate with them? Where are there some significant differences in attitudes between age and gender cohorts? And, you know, what is the best way for companies to sort of get into this um, space in Japan and navigate, I think, one of the most complex food economies on earth. So that was really the the impetus behind this study and the driver. And, um, and you know, I think the, the results, you know, as Japan is a very unique place on earth, the, the results are somewhat unique, though there are you see a lot of commonalities with similar research that's been done in the United States um, around the introduction of gene-edited foods. So that's that's sort of the high-level overview of of the work. Um, do you want to get kind of how do you want to approach this, Michelle? Do you want to get more into the specifics of it, or what is your preference? Well, I just want to take a second. Um, so I think most people think that Europeans have a strong feeling about GMOs and gene editing, especially with, you know, the ongoing court battles and stuff. So is is there already that similar sentiment in Japan or, you know, was there more comfort, presumably, like the United States? It's a, it's a good question. And I think the main thing in United States and Europe and Japan and anywhere else on earth is what you find is, 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 um, they're not aware of gene editing. Um, we have, because we work in this industry and we talk about CRISPR Cas9 or talons or whatever it may be every day, we assume that everybody is kind of coming along for the ride and is being educated in the same way that we are. And, is keeping abreast of developments. Um, but for the most part, the general public in any country on earth is not aware of gene editing as a technology that is being sort of incorporated and used in, in uh, plant breeding or animal breeding. Um, where you do find people that have knowledge of it, it mostly tracks attitudes towards biotechnology. So people that are aware of gene editing and that gene editing is being introduced um, into our sort of breeding repertoire, they, uh, it's kind of hard to differentiate the, their concerns from the concerns that they cite for biotechnology. So, you know, and that was a specific question that we asked. We, we did a, so back to the research we did a you know the survey we did in japan was um had a thousand participants um ages 29 to 65 um, men and women uh, throughout the entire country one of the questions we asked in order to establish a baseline was to was for people to explain their attitudes about um biotechnology or their concerns about biotechnology. And so the the most cited response or their their most cited sort of concern or image of of biotechnology was that it may have unintended effects either either, you know, for for safety or for ecological impact. And this tracked exactly with 
their top concerns for gene editing. So um, that is, I guess that's, you know, if, if you want to pull something out of the study that is a little bit disturbing is that we haven't done a good enough job yet in distinguishing uh, between these two types of technologies in the, in the minds of consumers. And so your work right now is very, even though the two technologies seem to be tied closely together in consumers' mind, you view it now as a way to talk about gene editing and you're leaving the um, the transgenic technology in the past or is it an opportunity to talk about both? Well, what's what's unique in Japan about gene editing is that... Um, it is a technology that um, the government of Japan and research in Japan, researchers in Japan are investing very heavily in. So, um, and so they have sort of more of a vested interest in consumer acceptance of this class of technologies than they did for, you know, transgenics. Um, you know, you see um, research happening in Japan that is very specific to Japanese needs. And so I'll, I'll give you a really great example. Um, one of the research institutions um, with funding from the government is looking at commercial um, farmed fish production. And so they have developed in research stage a what, what they call a docile tuna fish. Um, so a, a tuna... Uh, it's a very popular protein source in Japan for sushi and whatnot. Um, it's sort of a, a jittery animal um, and reacts to like lightning and thunder by swimming very quickly. So it's really hard to raise tuna in, in um, confined feeding operations in the ocean uh, because if there's a weather event, they all sort of scatter and can impale themselves on the nets. And so um, researchers have found a way to create a, a, a fish that's less responsive to loud noises like that. And so easier to raise in confined feeding operations. And then, you know, as an extension, easier to produce efficiently and cheaply and sustainably in order to ensure that there is, you know, the availability of tuna fish protein in Japan for many years to come, but also that, um, you know, the, the, the raising of the animals is, um, is, is humane. So, you know, that's a very like Japanese application of the technology to a very, uh, I guess Japanese problem, right? We, I don't think in the United States we would think that our first priority would be um, changing the behavior of a tuna fish with, with this technology. So, no, but that makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering, so with the technology, it feels like it immediately helps farmers that are trying to, you know, raise these tuna fish. Um, but by extension, it sounds like some of the messaging for the consumers is the animal welfare and the sustainability to prevent overfishing. Uh, and those are messages that we talk a lot about that resonate with consumers. So is that what, are there some aspects that of the technology that are resonating well? 
Absolutely. So, um, and that's not just in Japan, but everywhere. Um, so especially this year in, in 2020 in the year of COVID, um, messaging around disease resistance is more interesting to consumers, right? So if you can breed in um, disease resistance into animals, you know, whether if it's African swine fever or H1N1, whatever it may be, um, without, you know, the use of antibiotics or other types of applications, if you can, you know, breed in disease resistance genetically, um, that's a that's a very attractive you know, proposition for consumers um, that think about animal welfare and um, food self-sufficiency or sustainability. Uh, the other elements that are very attractive to consumers, um, especially in like developed economies um, that have sort of uh, more consumers in the older age brackets are health benefits. So, um, one of the first products that will be introduced in Japan um, next year, the first gene edited product that will be approved by the Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare, and MAF is what's called the high GABA tomato. So, Scuba University has um, developed a tomato that is high in GABA, which is a a neurotransmitter that exists in GABA. Um, they've figured out a way to amp up the production of GABA in this tomato so that it's it's good. It's a heart healthy. Um, it's good for hypertension, um, stress, things like that. So uh, there are really functional foods that can be introduced that would be attractive to Japanese consumers or consumers that, that are looking for certain elements or health health benefits from their food. So. Um, there's all kinds of great stories to tell out of, out of what gene editing can do for sustainability, human health, uh, food self-sufficiency, things like that. And so, um, and then it's really just a matter of, of making sure that you're capturing that message and tailoring it to the audience and understanding your audience. Because you mentioned that, um, disease resistance plays well now because of COVID. And I spoke with another guest expert previously, and she talked about how there's a better understanding of the language that we use around disease resistance. And so it's an interesting time for consumers because, or it's a great opportunity for agriculture because we can better talk about what we do. Um, and so I assume that that plays in here, that there's more of an understanding of how antibiotics and things work um, and why immunity is ideal. And then my second thought was with the healthy foods that, you know, that that also is an opportunity. I think that you said the data shows that older, older individuals are concerned about or more health conscious. Um, but again, in a time where, you know, where we're dealing with a pandemic and, you know, the comorbidities are obesity and, hypertension and these other problems that it seems like a lot more people are interested in healthy food. So it seems like a great time for this message. One of the challenges um, around talking about disease resistance is that you first have to explain to people 
how commercial production happens. And so that, <laughs> that creates, uh, you know, we are quite distant as consumers from the farm gate and people don't know, they don't necessarily want to know how their food is produced. And that's of course, well-documented change over the last several generations. And so, um, when, if you were to say consumers, oh, we're, we're going to use gene editing to, you know, breed in disease resistance. Um, the next question, I guess, in the minds of consumers is, well, how often are these animals getting diseased? Like how, how often, like what percentage of your production is getting called because of, you know, flock or get sick. And so you have to sort of keep that in mind is that when you talk about these things, you're also sort of begging more questions in the minds of consumers. So it's a, it's a interesting balance, right? Um, you know, I think there's creates, creates an opportunity for education, but also maybe, uh, shines a light on, on, some elements of animal production that consumers may not find all that appetizing. Right. That that does take us down an interesting path. Um, and some of the times I think that consumers don't like the gene editing technology because they don't understand it. And they feel like they should understand, like where your food comes from should be simple, right? We've been doing it for over 10,000 years, we've had agriculture. And if they could understand it 10,000 years ago, I should be able to understand it today. But so as soon as you get past that, but it's, you know, there's, and the truth is even without gene editing, I don't think most consumers could understand the complexity of agriculture. And I think that's something else that has shown through in the last six months. Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, when you talk about uh, using um, gene editing technology to reduce food waste because um, you're uh, making a non-browning apple or a non-browning banana or non-browning avocado. Um, I mean, that is, I think that's a message that can really resonate with people um, because food waste is on the minds of many consumers um, as something that, well, we ought not waste food. Um, it's drives up food prices, it, you know, reduces food security. Um, you know, there's, there's with the amount of food that's produced on earth. There's not, there's no reason people should go hungry. Uh, but then when you kind of stack that up against the statistics around how much food is produced that's wasted, um, you know, you, you get to the question of what can be done about that. And reducing browning, you know, is one of those things. Um, and so I think there's a really great story to tell about some of the traits that can be bred into um, food that will increase uh, I guess it's shelf life or, you know, reduce its, um, and waste quotient, whatever you want to call it. So 
So it sounds like two of the findings you found that have, you know, really come out today are the health benefits and and the um, food waste. Would you add sustainability or anything else to key messages that you learned? Yeah, definitely. One thing that was interesting and that we didn't quite expect was that um, when we went into the study, we had the idea that consumers would have sort of a red line between gene-edited plants and gene-edited animals. So because we've got a historical experience with biotechnology and plants, um, and that's sort of well understood by consumers and accepted to some degree, you know, thought, okay, well, you know, people may say, yeah, plants, I can understand gene editing plants and mutations happen over time and breeding is complicated, things like that. But with animals, we, we had the kind of hypothesis going into the study that yeah, you know, there would be a different attitude towards gene-edited animals, uh, but that didn't show up in the data at all. Um, consumers didn't express a preference or a uh, lack of preference, I guess, for either a plant or an animal. So they're sort of agnostic on you know, whether you've made a decision or uh, which is encouraging for the many firms that are out there operating in the there's there's not an additional hurdle to overcome. From your regulatory experience, would you say that so are these two pro are these are animal products or uh and plant products moving together or are it in the because you were expecting a difference in consumers, um is there a difference from the regulatory side? Well, I guess it depends on the jurisdiction. One of the things that's difficult is that you know, there's been a lot of talk about it. There's been tons of seminars on it and publications and research, but we have yet to really see that many products in the marketplace. You know, in fact, very few. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because um, the application in agriculture is still relatively new, and people are still figuring out what are their commercially viable products, and also. Um, most of the regulatory systems have yet to be built. Um, Korea has yet to seriously contemplate how they're going to approach gene-edited products. Mexico has yet to seriously concern, consider how they're going to approach gene-edited products. Um, Taiwan hasn't articulated a framework yet. So it's really hard for you this sort of globalized environment where it can be produced in the United States, gets traded throughout the world, it's really hard for companies to bring products forward uh, without regulatory clarity. And so, I mean, I think that's one element. Uh, the other is, of course, that um, I'm still trying to figure out what their most viable products are yet. But I would expect, uh, Michelle, that you know, in five years, you're going to see sort of a flood of products in the marketplace that are gene edited, mm -hmm. either for um, consumer benefit 
or for disease resistance or uh, you know, for, for, uh, for production benefits. Uh, and I would hope that regulators in you know the largest economies on earth I mean Europe European Union is its own thing, right? They're kind of gonna do their own thing and it probably won't make a lot of sense to other people, but um, you know, we would hope to see that you know, the in the ASEAN, North Asia and Mexico and all through Latin America that you have it sounds like you've got a lot of work left to do in the next five years before all these products come to market. You've got consumers that are not quite there and a lot of big governments that haven't come out with their policies yet. So, yeah, there's not, you know, I don't think we're, we have the luxury of saying, you know, this is too hard. Um, you know, with with uh, climate change and um, population growth, you do have a, a number of you know you have a lot of pressure on agriculture to produce. And um, yeah, I just don't I don't see where there's the, you know we have the luxury to say oh the times not good or the, it's, it's too difficult for the political environment. It's, you know, it's not convenient. Um, it, it's going to really take a lot of political will. Um, and I guess I would say um, regulators and politicians are going to have to be leaders here um, and do the right thing uh, in order to allow for technologies like this to be because it would be a shame to say we have the tools at our disposal um, where it's just geology is just too hard, right? <laughs> no, I think that's an excellent message. And before we wrap up, is there anything else that we missed that you want to cover? Well, I would say this. Um, one of the things that uh, another element of the research in Japan that really surprised us was that um, there are remarkable differences in age cohorts. So older Japanese people are sort of their impressions around biotechnology were formed in the late eighties, early nineties, but it became a politically difficult issue in Japan. Um, younger people. In their 20s and 30s don't hang on to any of that and, and these you know age brackets their, their attitudes for technology and technology and food both men and women are seriously different than their parents um, and so that is encouraging from from a long-term perspective where you say okay we can, you know, in, in 10, 20 years, when, when those people are you know, driving the economies and making all of the food purchasing decisions for their households, uh, we can see a day when we've kind of let go of some of the baggage uh, that we're still carrying um, 
around the image of GMOs, and that we can have hopefully more science-based rational decisions around technology. So that's that's very encouraging by my mind. Um, not even something that we really expected to show up as startling in the research as it did, but it was it's a good sign. No, that is. Um, it's it's great to see that 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 some of the you know that that a newer that a younger generation is open and that does give us room to you know educate and and without the door being closed before we start. So yeah, it helped to see that in the United States as well, um, but it is difficult in this environment for people to really. I mean, I think people are skeptical of the messengers. They're skeptical of everything they read, um, which is why sort of um, reductionist messages like eat clean, you know, or eat, or, I mean, like that resonates well because yeah, it's simple and people can interpret it in any way they want to interpret it. Um, maybe aligns with how they see themselves, but. Um, it's, I think it's really difficult to get, um, you know, non-biased factor in science-based information about food and agriculture now. So that's why podcasts like yours is very important. It's a challenge, right? Well, I think in your last quote, you said, we don't have the luxury of saying this is too hard. And then in your follow-up, you pointed out that younger generations are receptive. And earlier you said that governments are investing in this. So it does sound like even though the road ahead is challenging, that there are several bright spots. And on top of that, taking the time and doing research like yours to show you know, what is resonating and how, what consumers care about, hopefully will give us, you know, a strong approach moving forward. Yeah. It is really exciting when you look at what companies are doing with fruits and animals and grains. Like, it's really exciting uh, to say that, you know, we're, we're going to be moving into a you know agricultural production landscape that you know where technologies can be like this can be applied across the entire you know production value chain not just you know, concentrated in corn and beans which has been our sort of experience over the last 20 years uh around biotechnology um that you know, you're going to be able to say well you know what are the binding constraints and um, disease resistance in bananas to, to combat, you know, TR4, or um, what are ways to make you know, blackberries production safer for workers, things like that, or more consumable. So there are companies doing some really exciting work, and I think you know if if and when consumers take the time to understand it, they'll be quite pleased. Um, with the options that are available to them. No, that's excellent. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it with me today. I think that, you know, that a lot of great information came out of your research. And uh, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to reach you? Um, it's 
So I think the best way would be our uh, email address. It's info at northhg.com. That's our sort of company inbox. Uh, just shoot us a message. We are, like I said, we're doing sort of most of the work that we do is straight up regulatory work. Um, and then we, and we, from time to time, get involved in consumer affairs like this project in order to support, um, in order to support you know, our clients that are trying to understand how to navigate global regulatory frameworks. So um, this, you know, it was a real eye-opening experience to do this research and couldn't have been done without my partner in Japan, Hasao Fukuda, um, who I think is one of the, the best, brightest minds in food and agriculture in Japan, and um, his network of people that he works with, uh, including some leading academics and consumer research. So, uh, yeah, if anybody wants to reach out, we're happy to share more information. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking with you this morning. Thank you, Michelle.